This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. Uh, we are in the, what week is it? How many weeks has it been? 20. We are in the 20th week of the longest, who has ever heard of a 20-week series? I, I think Pastor Bob got pretty close a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> We are on the, t- yeah, yeah, we are, I didn't mean that bad. <laughs> we are in the 20th week of a series we're calling The Story. How many of you are following along with The Story? So we started the series in February in the book of Genesis, and we've been going chronologically through the Word of God. We're going to end in November in the book of Revelation. Guys, was this not just a divine word from the Lord to do this. And, I mean, during a time when we weren't even able to meet together at a certain time, the whole church has stayed on the same page, reading the same things in the Word of God every week together. Man, that has been such a binding force in our church family this year. What better thing to bind us together than the Word of God? So what we're doing is we're seeking to understand God's plan, to understand His plan for mankind from the beginning of time up until today, and on into eternity from here. And we know that his plan has been, his primary purpose since the Garden of Eden is to bring mankind back into relationship with him in the way that he originally intended it. Amen? How many of you are thankful for that? So, we have made it on a long journey. We are on week 20, and this week, for those of you who have followed along, we are, we are in the book of Esther. We're in the book of Esther. And so actually, um, you guys remember the timeline? I showed the timeline last week. Why don't you put that back up on the screen right quick? Um, the, the, the timeline of the story. Maybe we'll get it here in just a moment. Uh, but guys, there's the timeline of the Old Testament that we've been following along. And how many of you know, the last two weeks we've been hitting the return. Next week, Pastor Bob is going to share a message on the rebuilding of the walls And the next time that we dig into the story, Jesus is going to show up on the scene. We're going to celebrate Christmas in September, okay? We're going to celebrate, because this is what we've been leading up to, guys. This is everything, everything that we've read every week that you've studied and dug into the Word of God, everything has led to that moment in time, everything. So, just looking at the story We know the whole story is about God providing a way back um, for for mankind since the Garden of Eden. We know to pull this off, he strategically designed a way. What he did was he created a nation from scratch. From who? From Father Abraham, right? Called this nation Israel. And Israel's express purpose in the earth is to bring forth the Messiah. The one who would make the way back to God, right? And so with this Messiah, we know who is Jesus. He would come, we talked about how he would come through the tribe of Judah within Israel. And then as we kind of fast forward into the the last month or so, uh, we talked about how because of Israel's repeated disobedience to God's law and his plan, as we've been discussing it, um, they were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. When that 70 years was up, God opens a door for Judah to go home, uh, back to Jerusalem, and to return to their lives. But now, The express plan, the next plan that God has for Israel at this point is to birth the Messiah, right? This is it. 
This is the next thing, that really, that we're going to read about in Scripture that comes forth from the nation of Israel. So, guys, you know, no matter what happens, it's, it's easy for us to see it. You know, we've been talking about the upper story and the lower story. The lower story is the things that we see and hear and feel in our, in our daily lives. The upper story is what God is doing and his overarching plan and how he's, he's weaving through that. Guys, it's easy for us to get discouraged by what we see in the lower story. But let me tell you what, even here... God's plan is right on schedule. It's right on track. And I will tell you that in 2020, God's plan is right on schedule. It is right on track. And he is doing exactly what he intends to do. And guys, the church will be victorious. The church, you, we're not talking about walls anymore, right? We as the church, we are the hope of the world. Not because we're something great, because he's something great. Amen? Amen? So, uh, before we jump on into Esther, I wanted to mention something real quick that you guys may not have realized. We talked the last couple weeks as we talked about Daniel, and we've talked about how uh, King Cyrus released Israel to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Um, interesting to note here, if you look in Ezra chapter 1, um, and actually let me just read it to you real quick. Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, it says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, we know the Bible tells us that the group that went back to Jerusalem to do this work numbered about 50,000 people. Um, the Bible says that God moved on their hearts to go. I, I believe God moved on many of their hearts to return home uh, you know, for, for what he had to do. But we do know that many Jews did not return home, right? Many Jews did not. Um, they were still Jews, they just weren't living in the land that God had given their people as an inheritance. They just weren't living in the land of their ancestors. They were still Jewish. That's why you'll find in, in several weeks from now when we get to Acts chapter 2 and we talk about Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit came, it says that there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven. Why? Because they were scattered. Because of the exile, they were scattered out all over the known world. They would come back together for the feasts. So there were many Jews that did not return when King Cyrus released them to go back. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Esther. So when our reading in Esther begins this week, we are in, it, it picks up, it's the year 479, 479 B.C., don't you love how they're calling it BCE now? Have y'all seen that? I'm trying to take Christ out of it before common era. It's the way all the schools are teaching it now, to try and take Christ out of it. 479 BC. So we are 479 years till what? Till Jesus. Till the Messiah comes. Of course, Jesus makes his appearance uh, as, as a baby. So the Jews had come out of Babylon. Well, actually, it was Cyrus that released them. It was actually Persia right? Persia had come in and kicked the tails of the Babylonians. Um, Cyrus was the next king. He was a, he was a Persian king. He became king of, of that empire. And, um, and now, as we read in the book of Esther, King Xerxes is a king. But, uh, but if you look at it, the, the Persian empire was, was massive. It extended, it extended from, if you can picture Africa, from e actually really extended from Libya, the other side of Egypt, and extended all the way over into, um, into the area of Israel and Saudi Arabia and, and all the way up to Turkey and Greece and Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan. It reached all the way into India. This was a massive, massive empire. 
And as we pick up in the reading in Esther, uh, like I said, King Xerxes is the king of what was called the Medo-Persian Empire. So for those of you who, who read this week, read the book of Esther from the story, there's this guy who has risen up in the ranks of King Xerxes' administration, right? And his name was what? Haman. His name is Haman. And we know right from the get-go, we see that Haman has it out for the Jews. Now, I want to mention something because I mentioned this a couple months ago. Um, this hasn't been solidly proven. There's a little bit of evidence, but it hasn't been solidly proven. But Jewish tradition tells us that Haman was the offspring of King Agag. Does anybody remember King Agag? He was king of the Amalekites. And if you remember, when we studied this, the Amalekites were one of these nations that were trying to keep Israel from entering the promised land. And in chapter 10 of the story, halfway back, if you guys can remember, God told the first king of Israel, King Saul, to utterly destroy and kill all the Amalekites. 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 I can't say it right. He told them to utterly destroy them all. He said men, women, and children, right? And we talked about a part of why that was. We know that these were evil people. This was a very pagan nation. They, we know that they were sacrificing their children to their gods. We know that they were trying to stop Israel from entering the, the promised land. We know they were constantly attacking God's people. It was never-ending war when it came to the Amalekites. So we know in the story that Saul did wipe them out, except he kept some of the loot that he wasn't supposed to, and he allowed the king to live. This is a nation that had it out for God's people from day one. So... Like I said, according to Jewish tradition, Haman was an offspring of King Agag, and he still got it out for the Jews. So we know from the story that Haman uses his position. He signs this irrevocable decree, right? And he says that basically all the Jews are going to be executed on one specific day. And all the people throughout the 127 provinces of Israel on this one given day that it would be absolutely legal for them to slaughter the Jews, any Jewish person. And to give them a little bit of incentive, they said, every family that you take out, everything they own will now belong to you. So their homes and their barns and their vineyards and their cattle and their land and everything, it all becomes yours. Guys, remember, this was a barbaric time. This was a barbaric empire. And you imagine how the Jews were probably seeing their neighbors staring around the corner next door and going, hmm, checking out what all they got over there, right? And they're waiting for this one day to come when murder of the Jews is legal. Isn't there like a movie about that? One day a year that you can, yeah, anyway. So anyway, so Haman casts lots to determine when this event will take place. And, um, and the, the date is set for 8 air 13 on the Jewish calendar, which was 11 months away. So the Jews had 11 months warning to know that there was a day coming in 11 months when their neighbors could lawfully slaughter them and take everything they owned. What Haman doesn't know is that the king's new queen is Jewish, right? 
And we know that she kept this fact to herself when she became queen because Mordecai, her cousin who raised her, uh, told her that it would be a good idea for her to conceal her heritage and not tell anybody. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little later on. But what we know is that during this time, it doesn't seem that Esther and Mordecai were able to communicate with each other. And finally, Esther catches word that Mordecai is upset and he's in sackcloth and ashes out at the city gate. And she sends her servant to say what is wrong. And Mordecai sends word to Esther and tells her what's going on and says, you need to go before the king. Forget the facade. Forget, forget what I said. Tell him, go, plead on behalf of your people. Esther kindly sends her servant back to Mordecai and reminds him that this is not an easy thing that he's asking. I think that I think the Queen Esther probably remembered what happened to Queen Queen Vashti, the Queen Vashti, or whatever you want to call her. And she says, This isn't an easy thing. And so, so in Esther chapter 4, verse 11, here is um, here is what she says, she says, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Guys, even the queen, can you see how this is set up? Even the queen had to be called before the king or she could be executed. If she just entered into his presence without being summoned, she would die. Now, there was a chance that he could save you and he could extend the royal scepter. And the Bible tells us that at that point, you would reach out and you would touch the tip of it. And that meant that your life had been spared. So Mordecai sends his response to her. Go down a couple verses. Verse 13, it says, this is what Mordecai, this is her cousin who raised her. He says, Esther, do not think that because you're in your king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. All it took was one of her servants who knew that she was talking to Mordecai, who raised her, who was a Jew. All, one of them just had to say a word. You realize because of the king's decree, anybody on that day could have walked into the king's palace and slaughtered the queen, and there's nothing that would have happened. That nothing, they couldn't be touched. There would have been no consequence. You think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that maybe you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Guys, what is he saying here? He's saying, Esther, I don't think you have come to this position of immense influence by accident. Could it be that you were placed in this exact position at this exact time for this exact moment? And we know that, that Esther listened because here's her response. If you go down a couple more to verse 16, she sends back word by her servant back to Mordecai and says, Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa. Susa is the city where the, where the king was, where they lived. Uh, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, what? I perish. Guys, that's heavy right there. She's ready to go. She's ready to put her life on the line. So after three days of fasting, we know that Esther puts on her royal robes. And the Bible says that she steps into the inner court of the king. The king's on his throne. He sees her. And he extends the golden scepter, right? Queen Esther steps forward. And she touches it. And her life is spared. 
And we know that because of this, as a result, uh, skipping the, the rest of the story of Esther, we know that the Jews were saved. And even to this day, we know that the Jews commemorate this event in a celebration called the Feast of Purim. How many of you guys have heard of the Feast of Purim? It's celebrated. This year it was celebrated. It's usually in March. This year it was celebrated um, on March 9th and 10th. Um, but once again, we see God intervening from the upper story and taking what looks like utter disaster he uses it in the lower story to advance his plan, the redemption of mankind. And so, and let me mention this too, something I just thought of. Um, it's interesting that we're talking about how God is advancing. We see God advancing his plan in the book of Esther. You know, Esther is one, the one book of the Bible where God is never mentioned. Very interesting. It's God's people, and we are able to look at it, and we're able to see how God is working through it. But God is actually never mentioned in the book of Esther. You never see God or Lord or Father or anything. Very interesting. Anyway, so I'm going to give you, as I normally do, I'm going to give you three things, uh, three takeaways from our reading from the book of Esther as I was, as I was meditating on this. And what is the Lord saying to us? Because, guys, uh, in, in many ways, um, the world was much darker then than it is now. It was tough to be one of God's people in a foreign land, in a pagan land, like Persia. And so, what can we learn? What does God's word tell us, and what can we take from the example of Esther? I'm going to give you three things. Number one, and like I said, as normal, you can follow along from the YouVersion Bible app if you want. The notes are loaded in there. All you got to do is open it, go to events, and you'll find it there. Number one, guys, I want to tell you that God has placed you in a position of influence. God has placed you in a position of influence. Now, I know we're reading about Esther, and some of you, you may be watching online and you are thinking, what in the world are you talking about? What influence do I have? What can you possibly mean because you don't know what my life has been like? I've never been given a break. I've never been accepted. I can't get ahead. Of course, Esther had influence. She was queen of the most powerful empire in the world at the time. Let me tell you a few things. I was thinking about Esther. Because, you know, I think, you know how we kind of, we, we read the word and we kind of have a certain impression about certain books of the Bible and about certain characters and what they look like and, and kind of how they acted and reacted and how they carried themselves. I always kind of, I, I, I got to thinking, I always kind of picture, I've seen a couple movies on Esther and she's always comes across as so regal and she's got it all together. Like this, like this rags to riches princess story and, you know, and all this stuff. Let me tell you a few things I thought about about Esther today. Number one, first thing I thought of was, you do realize Esther was an orphan, right? The Bible says um, that it says that she knew, she actually says that she had neither father nor mother. If we go back to Jewish custom again, um, Jewish custom says that uh, her father died while her mother was pregnant and that her mother died giving birth to her. But I, I, don't, I don't know if that's accurate or not. But we know that she was an orphan and we know that she was raised by her cousin uh, Mordecai. So it seems like Mordecai was a loving guy. Seems like he probably raised her as his own and loved her a lot. But guys, it's still tough to be an orphan. Right from day one, it says she had neither father nor mother. So that's tough right from the get-go. Next thing I thought about about Esther. Esther and Mordecai had no choice in the matter. When she was chosen as one of the virgins to be presented to the king. 
That's tough. And you might think, well, maybe it was considered a great honor to be considered to be queen of the greatest empire in the world. I thought about that, but you know, most theologians agree that Esther was a teenager. As a matter of fact, the Bible refers to her as a virgin girl. They married very young back then. Many believe she was as young as 14. King Xerxes was 40, we know. That make your skin crawl a little bit? Uh, what? We don't know how she reacted to being chosen, but we do know that there were some things taken from her. The family that she had, her friends, her home, everything she knew and was comfortable with was gone in a moment as somebody came and escorted her out of the home. And we have no indication that she saw Mordecai again until after the whole Haman deal was done. Next thing I thought about, about Esther, and I'm going uh, to be a little careful in this because um, we do have um, young ones present. I got to thinking, you know, she was prepared for one year to be brought before the king, right? She was prepared, and we picture like spa treatments. You see it in the movies, you know, she's getting facials and her nails done and, and all these different things. Yeah, she was living in the harem of the virgins, and... The Bible says that when it came her turn to go before the king, that she was taken to him in the evening and she was escorted out in the morning. Y'all getting what I'm saying? If you also look a couple scriptures down from that, it says that she was not returned to the harem of the virgins. She was returned to the harem of the concubines. Her life was over uh, to have any kind of normal life if she was not chosen by the king it was over no man was going to take her as a husband nobody tough position to be in for potentially a 14 year old girl right i also thought about this why did mordecai tell her not to reveal her jewish heritage if you look at that it's generally agreed upon that jews were not valued like everybody else in the persian empire they were considered outsiders, lower class, looked down upon. They were probably considered second-rate citizens. They probably were not treated fairly. So they looked enough alike that they were able to just keep it quiet, and she was able to slip right on in without anybody ever knowing her family background and heritage. Guys, you see that potentially Esther, Esther had a tough go at it before she was ever an adult. But do you remember what Mordecai said? He said, maybe you were born for such a time as this. He's now asking her to go put her life on the line for God's people. And the same holds true for us today because you may have lived a life where you feel like you're unworthy. You feel like used goods. You may feel like you're an outsider. The Bible tells us that you were created to make a difference and that God placed you in a position of influence. Each one of us, you were born for such a time as this. As I said a few weeks ago, when God had thoughts about you before you were ever formed in your mother's womb, he looked ahead to 2020 and he said, I need them right there. I need them during that time. Acts 17, 26 tells us 
that God appointed this exact time in history and this exact place where you are now for you to live. And I would say this, God has already given you a sphere of influence. And maybe you're in a position that's really tough right now and you feel like you don't have any influence. But let me tell you this, God is using the circumstances that you are facing right now in your life to strengthen you. He's using it to grow you, to stretch you. That you'll trust him and be ready for the influence that he's bringing you. And we know we studied a little while back about David. This is what God did for David. David, initially, his influence was over a flock of sheep. But he was also fending off lions and bears, right? God was using that and preparing him for what was to come. He guarded them with his life. God had in mind for him to be a different kind of shepherd. He would have a different influence. He would be the king of God's people. And we know that many difficulties came and prepared him and matured him for what God had. He, from facing down a literal giant to running from Saul for 14 years, God was preparing him just as God uses the situations and things in your lives to prepare you for greater influence. So some of you are students and you've just gone back to school. I remember my parents thinking that when I was in school, wow, things were worse than they were when, back in the day when I went to school. And now I look at my kids and I think, wow, things are worse today than they were back when I was a kid. And, and, but guys, that's what a place that is. If you're in school, that is your sphere of influence. God has placed you there strategically to be a beacon of hope and light in a dark and dying world. Maybe you're a teacher or administrator. Man, what a responsibility. Some of us as parents, as moms and dads, we have an unbelievable level of influence that God has entrusted to us over one or more young people. And our influence will highly affect the trajectory of their lives. God has given us a sphere of influence. For you, it may be, uh, it may be work. It may be your sphere of influence. But one way or the other, God has given you a sphere of influence. And God tells us that we are faithful with the influence he has given us. He will give us more. How many of you want to make a difference for the kingdom? I'm glad four of us do. So that's the first thing I want to mention. God has placed you in a position of influence. Now, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to tell you the next two points. Because I almost did number three first. Number three is you need to know when it's time to speak up. But I got to thinking, before that, we need to do a number two in between. Number two is, you need to know when you keep your mouth shut. If we've been given influence, we've got to know when to keep our mouths shut. How many of you remember your mom's telling you, just because you think it, doesn't mean you need to say it? I have them thoughts every day, Right? We need to learn when it is appropriate to keep our mouth shut. And I would suggest that sometimes, don't send me emails, sometimes it's more important to keep our mouth shut than it is to open it. Depends on what's in there. We live in a time when everybody has an opinion and feels compelled to voice it. I think before we're allowed to speak out, we need to learn how to Shut up first. I would even suggest that if we would learn when not to speak, you will be better received when it comes time to speak. 
People won't automatically, they won't automatically dismiss you when you speak up and say, oh, here he goes again. Right? So when should we keep our mouths shut? I just, I just made a short list. When should we keep our mouths shut? I would say, number one, I've got scriptures. I was, I was reading in Romans 14. Number one, first thing was, in matters of preference and opinion. <laughs> I'm glad my daughter agrees. In matters of preference and opinion. Guys, the Bible teaches, listen to, listen to me. The Bible teaches that when people are weak, they confuse truth for preference or opinion. When we're weak and not mature, we confuse truth for preference and opinion. And then what do we do? We push our opinion as if it's truth on others around us. And that can be very destructive. A mature, strong believer needs to know the difference. So we need to keep our mouths shut when it comes to matters of preference. Another one. We need to keep our mouths shut when it comes to people who won't listen. Have you, do you know somebody in your life, it didn't matter if you showed them 100% evidence of something, they would reject it. Pfft, no. You ever known somebody that would argue with a street sign and go the wrong way home? I, I read recently about a seminary professor, and he was invited to a debate with an atheist. And he was willing to do that, go to a public debate with an atheist, the seminary professor. But he felt compelled to ask the atheist a question first. So before he agreed, he asked him a question. And he basically said, if, are you willing to change your position at, at, at all if I can make a convincing argument? And the guy said, laughed and said, no. And he said, then I'm not coming. I'm not coming. There's no sense in arguing with somebody who is unwilling to listen, unconcerned with the truth, and unwilling to change regardless of the evidence. You're wasting your time. Another time to keep your mouth shut, when you're angry. When you're angry. Speaking up when you're angry, guys, you know this. It almost always creates a bigger mess than you had to begin with. Almost always. Proverbs tells us, a soft answer turns away wrath. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking for us as parents, when we discipline our children in anger, it undermines our character. It undermines our influence. It undermines our leadership in their lives. One of the best things we can do is learn to bite our tongue in a moment and say, we'll discuss this later. I'm going to go pray, and I'm going to get my heart right, and I'm going to get my brain in the right frame of mind, and then we'll talk about it, right? Another time to keep your mouth, oh, let me say this too. <laughs> I jotted this down yesterday. And don't send text messages late at night when you can't sleep and you're stewing on something. Or emails, or a Facebook post. Guys, I've done that a few times, and I actually, I actually installed a, a, a little plug-in for Gmail that I use now that gives me a 10-second delay once I hit send. When I hit send, I've got a little countdown down in the corner, and at any moment in those 10 seconds, I can click that and cancel, and it won't go through. <laughs> 
just in case. Just in case. Right? Don't open your mouth when you're angry. I'm going to give you two more. How about, and I read this, I just added this yesterday because Sean and I are reading, we're reading, we're reading in 1 Corinthians this week. When you're judging someone's motives, judging someone's motives. As Christians, this can be a tough one because sometimes we think we are experts at the motives between why somebody or some group of people does or does not do something or why they react a certain way. When I was reading this week in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think, chapter 4, what happened was Paul's writing this letter because the people had done that to him. They, they have brought his motives to the table, and they're questioning his motives. So he writes in 1 Corinthians, he's addressing this. Like I said, I think it's 1 Corinthians 4. And he basically says, man, I wish I'd put that verse down. Um, he basically says, it's interesting that you think you know the motives behind my heart because I don't always know the motives behind everything I do. And one day God will reveal them to me. But very interesting that you think you know the motives behind everything that I do. Very interesting that you're judging my motives. I, I, I think I shared this a couple of years ago. You guys have probably heard the story of the guy in the airport who was sitting at the gate and uh, waiting on a flight and his kids are running around and they're screaming and they're knocking over people's luggage and, 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 and they're being just a holy terror at the gate. And finally somebody gets angry and goes up to the man and said, when are you going to do something about your kids? And that's when he looks up with tears in his eyes and says, I'm barely holding it together. We just buried their mother, and I don't know what to say. Guys, we don't always know the whole story. I found that rarely do I know the whole story, actually. Rarely. we got to be careful judging people's motives. That's where a believer should have stepped in and said, sir, are you doing all right? Would your kids like to play a, a game on my phone? Can I pray for you? We've got to be careful judging people's motives. Last thing I was going to mention to you there under this, knowing when to keep your mouth shut. And this is a huge one. We've got to make sure we keep our mouths shut when we don't know what we're talking about. We don't know what we're talking about. I mean, the, the, one of the worst things ever is to put a post on Facebook and somebody goes, uh, that post was from 2006 and it was proven wrong. And you're like, oh, delete. <laughs> and you were just convinced because it backed up your argument. But in reality, you didn't know what you were talking about. You ever known somebody that seemed to know the answer to every question? Guys, I don't want to be known as a person who thinks they know it all. <laughs> you ever known somebody that feels like they're a legend in their own mind? <laughs> Guys, we're all ignorant in different areas. And I think one of the greatest signs of maturity, especially in a, in a believer, is when we're willing to answer somebody and say, I don't know. What do you think? We don't have to have all the answers. When we learn to respond that way, instead of being a know-it-all, again, I think you'll find that people actually want to be around you. Wow. wow. Amazing. So, we've all been given a position of influence by God. We need to know when to keep our mouths shut. But like Esther in number three, we need to know when it's time to speak up. We need to know when it's time to speak up. 
Maybe you've been hiding under a rock and didn't know this, but we live in a very PC society. What's PC stand for? I don't even want to say it out loud. Politically correct. Guys, if you're like me, sometimes I feel like I can't say anything without offending somebody. It's gotten utterly ridiculous. It's amazing. You, you wouldn't believe it's happened to me a number of times, even over the last year or so, where somebody will say to me one day, they'll, they'll say, hey, did you hear about so-and-so in the church this week? No, what's up? Oh, they were totally offended at your message Sunday. And I'm going, what, what did I say? I was like preaching on joy. You know, what, 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 what was there to be offended about? And of course, they're telling somebody else instead of saying anything to me. You know, it's like, what? What was there to be offended about? Now, guys, I never want to be accused of being needlessly offensive, ever. And I don't want to ever be accused of um, being legalistic with the Word of God and, and using legalism to try to win people to Christ, if you know what I'm talking about. But with that said, some things just have to be said. Sometimes... Um, we have to recognize that while uh, there are a lot of reasons to not speak up, there are times that God compels us to speak up. And like Esther said, what'd she say? If I perish, I perish. Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4 says, Defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. We see here God is telling us to speak up and be a voice for those with no or little voice. I was thinking about other situations where Christians should feel compelled to speak out. We should be feel compelled to speak out on issues of abuse or injustice toward somebody. If we see abuse or we see injustice toward a person of any person of any, either gender, any color, any background, any walk of life. It is the responsibility of the body of Christ to stand up and to speak out and to stand with them. Amen? Ecclesiastes 3.17 says, I said to myself, God will bring judgment both on the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time... For there, for there will be a time for every activity under heaven, a time to judge every deed. Hosea 12, 6 says, but you must return to God, maintain love and what? Justice and wait for God, your God always. Job 12, 22, he reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness into light. Look at this, Psalm 37, 27, 29 says, turn from evil and do good, then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be utterly destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord God, the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. God wants us to speak up and speak out on behalf of those without a voice. Another one I thought of. Time to speak up. What about support of the unborn? 
Guys, I will never, I've known a lot of people that have had abortions. And I will never heap guilt or condemnation on someone for that as if, as if there's no forgiveness in Christ. But we've got to speak up when it comes to abortion. And unfortunately, this is becoming less and less a popular topic to talk about in church. It's becoming controversial in church. Fifteen years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. Things are shifting. Guys, I was just thinking, you know, God gave us all mothers, and mothers are some of the most amazing people on the planet. They put up with us, and they deal with our mess, and they wipe up behind us, and and they are patient with us, and they love us unconditionally. But let me tell you this. When there comes a time, when there comes a time when mothers are no longer protecting the lives of their unborn children to the point of even allowing them to go almost full term before ending their life. We're in trouble. And people say, well, well, what about the poor? They just can't afford to raise it. Guys, look at the stats. They, They don't tell you this on TV. All the stats show the majority of abortions are not among the poor. They're not. One recent study I found actually suggests that the majority of abortions, you know, they have them fill out forms where they have an abortion. The majority of them mark Christian on their paperwork. Guys, the Bible tells us that God knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. Even then, he had a purpose and a plan for your life. So if we believe what the Bible says, how can we support abortion? People say, well, what about like instances of, of rape? How many of you, any of you listen to Focus on the Family Radio? There was a great one, I think it was Thursday. I don't know if you heard that on Thursday. But they had a, a lady who, a Christian lady who was on a business trip. She was 39 years old on a business trip. Uh, was going back to her t- hotel room and let's just, again, for the sake of young ones, say she was, she was assaulted. Okay? Six weeks later, her and her husband are trying to pick up the pieces. And she found out that she was pregnant. And all the doctors said, you need to have an abortion. You, you don't need this. That child will be a constant reminder of what happened to you. She said, it will be a constant reminder that in the midst of utter darkness, God brings life. Amen. Guys, we have got to speak. I encourage you. The Focus on the Family app, by the way, is free. And you can download it in the App Store. And you can listen to that radio broadcast. I think it was Thursday of last week. I was almost in tears in the car on, on Thursday. The last thing I want to mention before we close, a time to speak up is when it comes to issues of morality. Biblical morality. Guys, as I mentioned, we live in a very politically correct society today. And here's the thing. Many, if not most of us, we're afraid to speak out. Because we're afraid of the backlash and what could happen. I had somebody, I don't know if they're, I don't know if he's still here, but he, he told me earlier that he... Um, he removed his workplace from social media today, from Facebook and all that, because he had put up a few things that uh, were getting under people's skin, and he didn't want backlash. He didn't want anybody to be able to trace him down and find him. Remember when Dr. Leon came and talked about, talked about Islam a, a couple years ago? We didn't put that on the website because 
We wanted to empower, we wanted to give the knowledge to you guys so that you could go forth and be empowered with knowledge and know how to reach those. But we also knew what would happen. And Dr. Leon asked us about it. And he said, I can't have them coming to my home while I'm traveling all the time and my wife is at the house. He said, I, I, can't, I'm, I'm, I can't deal with that right now, right? So in the midst of this, guys, um, there was a study done recently. How many of you heard of George Barna, Barna Research Group? They, they do statistics and studies. It's a Christian organization. Barna Research Group revealed that half of U.S. pastors, and this is in quotes, feel worried about speaking out on certain issues because they're worried about offending people, particularly within their own churches. Predictably, LGBT issues and gay marriage was the top concern with abortion and sexual immorality as runners-up. Guys, it's interesting because we are increasingly being faced with issues in our society that conflict with clear, basic biblical morality. And those are places where we have to speak the truth in love. Not when we're angry, not in all these other things. We stand up and we be Jesus. And if I perish, I perish. We are the voice of God in the earth. I was talking to a father in the church that's, that's here today. He was telling me, he was standing in my driveway the other day and saying that he was, we were, talking to, we were talking about movies. And he was talking about how he had to talk to his teenage son about why we don't watch certain things that your friends are watching at school. And how it affects you. Having to take a stand within your own family and speak up and speak out on issues when it comes to morality. You know, people say, well, the Bible says not to judge. I found, I found that most people that throw that comment around all the time, no offense if you say it, I'm not trying to condemn you, but usually people who throw that around a lot are just ignorant. Not, I didn't say you were stupid. Just, just don't know and don't understand what the Bible says. Again, reading in 1 Corinthians, I don't know if you've done your reading yet this morning in chapter 5, but I just added this this morning. Um, what does the Bible say when it comes to judging? Does it say not to judge? It says we're to not to judge. What it's saying is we're not to judge unbelievers. As a matter of fact, and I, like I said, I threw this in this morning, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addresses this, and he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 12, this, this isn't in your notes, Miss Kim, isn't, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. He'd been talking about unbelievers. It's not my responsibility to judge outsiders. I mean, what, why are you gonna, what, how are you going to go judge an unbeliever for, you know, you better not be having relations outside of marriage. Why? They're unbelievers. They don't follow the same moral code that you follow. Why would we judge them? Paul says, it's not my responsibility. But then he says, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those in the church who are sinning. Oh, Lord Jesus. What? He said, God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil from among you. Guys, that is some heavy stuff right there. Did you know there's a time to speak up within the church? What about when Jesus says, you will know people are truly Christians by their fruit? What are you doing? You're judging. Somebody's saying that they're an apple, but they look an awful lot like an orange. Right? 
They'll say they're a believer, but they sure walk, talk, and act like an unbeliever. It's like, hmm. The Bible is very clear there's no place for sin in the church. No, well, nobody is perfect, obviously, but let me say this. If there is blatant sin in your life, and you have no godly people in your life to call you out on it, you need some new friends. You need new friends. You should have somebody in your life that will call you out and say, that is sin. And God cannot bless that. And I want to walk with you and encourage you to get this thing straight. What can I do for you? Let's walk it out. I'll hold you accountable. We are commanded in Scripture to stand for what is moral and righteous, especially within the church. So, guys, we will be confronted more and more with moral issues as the days get darker. We must be willing to stand firm on what God's word says. We have to be willing to face the consequences if we have to. And again, as Esther said, if I perish, I perish, knowing that I pleased God and I did what was right. So, God has placed you in a position of influence. You got to know when you keep your mouth shut. You got to know when it's time to speak up. Can I get an amen? amen? Let's all stand up on our feet. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close here in just a minute. I want you to hang with me for another few minutes. I've got a couple more things I want to do. But first and foremost, I want you to bow your heads with me. Everybody across this place, let's bow our heads together. And I just want to tell you, you may be here, you may be watching online, whether it's today or whether it's a year from now, you're hearing this message. You're hearing from the Word of God and you feel pierced to the core. Let me tell you, that's the Holy Spirit in your life. He's pulling on you. He's pleading with you. And he's saying, please come back. Please surrender. Please give me your everything. The Bible says that Jesus is at the door knocking. And that's, that's where he's at right now. He's at the door of your heart. And he's knocking and he's saying, come on, your way's not working. You're lost in your sin. You're full of guilt and shame. But I made a way. Accept me in. The Bible tells us that if we'll give up our own life, if we'll surrender, if we'll repent of our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And he'll take the reins of our life and he'll walk with us. Does it mean we won't experience tough stuff in life? No, not at all. But we'll have the creator of the universe walking with us. He'll have us hand in hand and he'll be encouraging us along the way and he'll be giving us strength He'll be there every day saying, you can do it. You've got this. Let's do it together. If that's you and you've never given your life to Jesus, or maybe you have, but you just recognize that your, your life just isn't surrendered. You, 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 you say, you know what? I, I'm totally living my life for myself. I, there, I have just made no place for him. There, there, I've made no place for Jesus. If that's you, I just encourage you right now. Don't, don't, please don't wait another day. Take advantage of this moment. I just want you to pray, and you're just going to pray something like this, and you can do it in your own words, but just say, just talk to him. Just say, Father, I, I recognize that I'm lost. I recognize that I'm an utter failure on my own, and I recognize that I need you desperately. And just tell him, just thank him. Jesus, I thank you that you prayed the, paid the price for my sin. You, you gave your life for me. You took the judgment I deserved. I thank you for the great exchange. 
You got what I deserved, but I got what you deserve. So I repent of my sin. Just tell him, I turn to you. Jesus, come into my heart. I'll follow you all the days of my life. You will be the Lord and you will be the master. And I'll follow you to the end. Holy Spirit, fill fill me and empower me to be everything you've called me to be. In Jesus' name. If you prayed a prayer, if you made a decision, you will notice that if you're online, you'll notice that on the Facebook feed, it just popped up a link to our connection card. Our our links have kind of changed today. We've had some issues, but the link is there. Even if you already filled out your connection card, please click on that link and fill it out again. I want to reach out to you. So I want you to check. There's a place for you to check on there that I gave my life to the Lord. I'm rededicating my life to the Lord. I want to be water baptized. Put those things down. You need somebody to walk with you. And we would be more than glad. We would love to be a part of your journey as you follow the Lord. Guys, for the rest of us, I want to mention a couple of last things. Some of you know that Shauna and Lauren were in Texas this week and and Shauna made a comment to me about the reading out of Esther and and something that she had realized. One, Mordecai told Esther that it was time to speak up. Isn't that interesting? We think we can go it alone. But Esther had a Mordecai in her life who said, Esther, it looks to me like God has put you in a position where you can change everything. It's time for you to step out. We all need that person in our life. Another thing she mentioned that she noticed was, what did Esther do from there? She prayed and she fasted. She went before God with this, right? And then, as our elder Zach said this morning, what the Lord's been speaking to me lately. I've, I've told a few of you over the last week or two. I've just been feeling compelled to turn off all the voices. So many different opinions saying so many different things. And I just it just dropped in me. My prayer now is, Lord, what is the next right step you have for me to take today? I don't know what tomorrow's going to look like. Don't know what it's going to hold. I don't know what you're going to ask me to do but I want to take the next right step forward in my life. So the question is, as we close, what is God saying to you? Are you you overwhelmed by voices? I encourage you to turn them off. Turn them off. And ask the Lord what he has for you. What position of influence has God given you? What does he want you to say? Don't forget, regardless of where you find yourself today, regardless of what your past looks like, you were born for such a time as the 2020 pandemic. God has a purpose and a plan. He wants to use you in the midst of all this. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, 
please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.